The ideal behind a classical education is to be grounded in the truth, to be grounded in those things which make us a good member of society. Hello and welcome to this episode of Paideia Ponderings. I'm Dr. David Stanton, the headmaster of Oakdale Academy. I want to speak to you today about a short history of education and in that try and explain to you why I think that the classical Christian model is the ideal and the best way certainly to educate our students and what we would stand for here at Oakdale Academy. Let me take you down this this short journey down the history of education and we start all the way back in ancient times in the time of the ancient Greeks and at that point when you had people like Socrates, you had Plato, you had Aristotle, the, the ideal form of education is, is now what we would call idealism, where only a few people can ever know the, the highest levels of truth. There's an emphasis on the mind, and reality is dependent in the Greek mind on that pantheon of gods. There, there was a stress in logic and math and philosophy and everything that's real is eternal, it's perfect, it's unchanging, it's orderly, it's knowledge-based system, this, this idealism. But what happens is that over time and um, over the course of centuries, education shifts slightly as we grow in our knowledge of God's creation. Uh, we, we ultimately enter into two other uh, versions or uh, portions of education here, the first being realism, and this is a, an emphasis on mind and senses where everyone is opposed to Socrates and Plato, same only a small number, but everyone could know the highest levels of truth because of all this empirical data that we had gathered because of the senses that were there. Now it's the Middle Ages, it's the 13th century, so the 1200s, where we get a response to both idealism and realism with the dawning of Christian scriptures being added to science. And it's called Thomism or Thomism because of the influence of Thomas Aquinas, where he changes what was taught by Aristotle, by Socrates, by Plato, and adds in that reality is created by God and that truth and goodness are unchanging. They're universal. They're eternal. Well, that that goes for a couple hundred years and that that philosophy that Thomas Aquinas brought about was what was accepted by most of Western society throughout the Middle Ages. It's in the 1400s, the late 1400s, that Desiderius Erasmus changes education again through his influence. And it's here. Most people think that um, what I'm going to describe now is a humanist influence begins in the 1800s, the 1900s, or, or maybe even a little earlier with the Enlightenment, but it's back in the late 1400s, the early 1500s, where Desiderius Erasmus introduces humanism uh, fully into education. Now, it's, it's during this time that you start to get the influences that uh, Erasmus comes about that 100 years later are going to influence people such as John Locke. Um, and what starts to happen is Locke starts to talk about habits that are formed early in life. Um, Locke talks about a curriculum where he talks to letting children play 
and be what they want to be, which is children. He talks about uh, English literature, geography, laws, parliamentary laws, scripture, and chronology as the basis for his preferred curriculum, John Locke. John Locke's influence, and certainly that of Jean-Jacques Rousseau and, and all the ideas of the Enlightenment, ultimately bubble into a new philosophy when it comes to education that would be called Romanticism. And from Rousseau, from Locke, this, this idea of Romanticism puts an emphasis on the imagination, not on intellect, not on what we would perhaps call critical thinking today, but on imagination, on subjective sense perception. You know, whatever you thought they would argue was true. It was a focus on your emotions. Reality was what one experiences, what one feels, not on any basis of truth that would have been accurate previous to this in Thomism and even in idealism of the ancient Greeks, but it was whatever you experienced and felt. So Romanticism becomes this experience-based movement. You know, they're famous in Romanticism to say that children are naturally good. Children uh, would be fine without society, without adults. Society is what corrupts children. From there, it's not a far step that in the late 19th century, and even into the early parts of the 20th century, you then have the development of what we call pragmatism. And simply by definition, it's, it's pragmatic. It's something that uh, focuses on day-to-day -day applications of what education is. And here's where you have some of the big names that most people that understand some level of history of education would recognize. John Dewey, William James, for examples. And pragmatism also is experience based. And reality, though, just as with Romanticism, reality is constantly changing because it's, it's based on our experiences. When it stops being useful, that reality, you drop it. You add your next reality, which, you know, your next interaction with the world creates your next reality. Hopefully you can see why there are just so many logical flaws with this concept, but this is what has shaped our education, it is around this point as the pragmatic era is taking off that we begin to see in the United States a move away from the local control of schooling. I mean, if you think about Laura Ingalls Wilder and the one-room schoolhouse out on the Great Plains and in the big woods, and that was schooling that was deemed important to the parents at certain points in the development of their children. It's now a change during the pragmatic era where compulsory education, beginning in Massachusetts and ultimately funneling to all the states in the Union, is based on this pragmatic approach. Well, there's a reaction to this in the late 19th century, a reaction to this pragmatist uh, outlook on education called perennialism. And it's a look backwards to the Middle Ages, to Aquinas, and even further all the way back to Aristotle. And it's dominant in our colonial and in our post-colonial era. Um, the, the facts in perennialism are we need to set up certain standards, certain things that we have to study. So in lower elementary schools, we would study reading, writing, arithmetic, as well as moral and religious training. 
And in the secondary levels, the, the high school, the middle schools, we would study Greek, Latin, English grammar, rhetoric, logic, geometry. There would be character ed education as well as education about what it is to be a good citizen. There were universal values and knowledge based on truth. There was an, on, an honest expression of knowing reality. It was based on good habits. It was based on intellect and what science tells us along with the scriptures of the Holy Bible. It was a great time of reaction to the pragmatic thoughts, but perennialism was, was simply subject-based. One of the great names of that was Mortimer J. Adler and what he called the Paideia Proposal. Alan Bloom and the closing of the American mind, they both said you would start with truth and you pass things along as a foundation. Well, the problem that the perennialists faced was the progressive or the, the pragmatic way of thinking was, was becoming too powerful with the onset of compulsory education. Everyone had to go to school. So progressivism comes in and it's one of its main objectives was to get rid of perennialism. So this is right at the turn of the 20th century. And think about historically, you're now entering a great immigration age in the United States, the whole melting pot time frame, when so many people are exiting Eastern and Western Europe and other parts of the world for the United States. There's an influx of students that are now going to mandated schools, compulsory education, and the progressives, the old pragmatics, are saying this is the opportunity that we have now to truly shape the next several generations, and they are going to get rid of this perennialism. It's heavily influenced by the pragmatic thought. They say the teacher is no longer an authority. They are a guide. They're a facilitator. The feature is it's child-centered curriculum. We focus on, on creativity in a progressive mindset and a progressive philosophy of education. There's, they reject reliance on textbooks. They reject memorization. They reject universal truth. They embrace individual experiences, changing social realities, and problem solving. The relevance in the classroom is what is most important. You're operating inside of a lab. Well, in the 1930s, there's a reaction uh, back towards that, that was an attempt, somewhat half-hearted, to return to perennialism. And it just, it, it never really took off. There wasn't much that um, could be fought against this progressive movement that I would argue has taken over even through modern education. The main change now in the late 20th century is many would still use the term progressive, but I would add the term social reconstructionism this political correctness that has come into education. You think about some of the popular trends in education, the international baccalaureate, the global citizenship focus, this international uh, importance that we place on ecology now, on economics, on evolution being taught as fact, on all these things that are social issues in the world. They're refining the curriculum they're rethinking things, they're reflecting on the curriculum, you're reinterpreting, you're reconceptualizing the curriculum. We're using different languages, but we're changing the curriculum constantly in a progressive model. Even to the point that you start to get to a concept of existentialism. 
you start to completely remove all concept of a higher authority, what we in, in Christian circles would certainly refer to as God. Uh, it, it's always removed. Now let me compare that then with classical education. And classical education would in many ways be a return back to the ideas of idealism of Socrates and Plato, the ideas of Thomism of Thomas Aquinas, ideas that Dorothy Sayers put forth in her book, The Lost Tools of Learning. What John Milton Gregory says about the art of teaching in his Seven Laws of Teaching. It's a philosophy of education that reminds us that there is truth. There is universal truth. And it's the job of a teacher, it's the job of an educational institution, of a school such as Oakdale, and such as anyone that would purport to be a classically modeled school or a classically modeled educational institution to ensure that students are wrestling through truth. They view their subjects, they view their studies through truth. And again, if you think about pragmatics and by extension the progressives of the 20th century, the focus of education is on um, how you fit into society, meaning what, what college you get into. The great lie of telling every student that they should be going to college. The idea that education has at its end what job you get, what college you get into, what career you get at. Those are all wonderful things to think about, wonderful things to pray about and to see where God's leading. But the object of education is not to get into the best college. The object of education is not to get the best high-paying job. Those things may result from your education, but the ideal behind a classical education is to be grounded in the truth, to be grounded in those things which make us a good member of society, a good creation that can honor the Lord in what we do. At Oakdale, we focus on the classics because we focus on three things. We focus on these three words that are part of our mission, and those words are character, truth, and wisdom. We look to develop character in our students in all that they do and how they interact in the hallways, how they interact with their classmates, with their teachers, with guests to the building, and certainly outside of our walls. We focus on truth. We view all things, every subject, every lesson, every chapel message through the truth that is presented to us in God's Word. We remember that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting. We hold fast to the standard that is given to us in the Bible. And we focus on imparting wisdom to our students, using our experiences and our knowledge as teachers, as instructors, and as adults to help foster in our students a desire to grow in the knowledge and the ways of the Lord. Those are the things that make places that focus on classical Christian education so different and I would say so much better prepared to work with students to ensure that there is rigor, there is hard work, but there is joy that comes from it. Because the end is not what job did you get? How much money do you make? 
Do you have the white picket fence with the 2.5 kids and the dog and the cat and the great car and the wonderful vacations? It is about what are you doing in your education? What is it that you're learning and how do you take the knowledge that you gain, the wisdom that you attain, and turn it into a life of service to God, to your family, to your community, to your country? Thanks for joining me just for a few short minutes to take this very quick trail down the history of education. There's certainly many more resources that we could discuss, but I hope that you enjoyed and hopefully it whets your appetite to learn more about the history of our educational system and to focus on classical Christian education. If it's of interest to you, I encourage you to visit our website, www.oakdaleacademy.com. Dot com. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the links there on our website. If you live in the Metro Detroit area, certainly encourage you to contact us if you're interested in something different for your child, something different in the way that they're taught and in how they're taught and in the purpose of them being taught. I encourage you to contact us via email, admissions at oakdaleacademy.com. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, certainly welcome those. You can contact us via email as well, info at oakdaleacademy.com. And finally, I'd just like to ask people to prayerfully consider if classical education is something that you're starting to hear about or something that you know about. And from this short time and perhaps some research on our website or on others that you feel the need and the desire to give, you can certainly click on the donate button that would take you to our PayPal account. And we would certainly appreciate that as we look to use all of our resources to honor God as we move forward with classical education. Again, thanks for joining us. Check us out on our website again, www.oakdaleacademy.com. It's been a pleasure sharing my thoughts with you. Here on Paideia Ponderings, I'm Dr. David Stanton, the headmaster of Oakdale Academy. Enjoy your day. Thank you.